Uh, hello, um, Ginny Barnett and my husband Roger and I have been coming to Liberty for a little over four years. Um, I always thought it would be sort of fun to give a testimony, but I never expected it to be a testimony on one of the sex Sundays. Uh, And so um, I have to let you know, usually this part of my testimony is about one sentence long. Don't go into a lot of detail. But um, I was asked to share, um, give a little bit more detail to you this morning. Um, So um, it really is a testimony to um, my brokenness and God's grace. Um, And I hope that that's what you take away from this. Um, I became sexually active at the age of 15. Uh, I was a sophomore in high school, and I fell deeply in love with a young guy who I thought was committed to me. Um, I thought this relationship was going to end up in marriage. And I know um, that's not something you see a lot of today, but when I was growing up, I had two sisters and three cousins that went to high school with me, and all all five of them married their high school sweethearts. Uh, They were all married before the age of 20. I was the only one who married somebody I met later in life. Um, I don't know if if any of you are big Harry Potter fans, but uh, Jeff, a couple of weeks ago, talked about horcruxes and the ripping of the soul. And I immediately thought about this relationship because I had invested a whole lot into this relationship. I had given, uh, the young man's name was Martin, a huge part of my heart. And when he decided that he wanted to break up, um, he wanted to date other people, um, really, um, I could feel my heart rip in half. But, you know, horcruxes in Harry Potter were to give... Voldemort immortality. They were to put his soul in a safe place. Um, and I thought I had given part of my heart and put it in a soft place. But this found a lot, felt a lot more like death to me. Um, and it wasn't safe. The person who was walking away with my heart really didn't care much about it. And it really felt like it was dying as it was walking away with him. Um, He was involved with someone else, and as often happens, uh, we ended up getting back together for a short period of time. Uh, And, you know, once you've been sexually active, it's really easy to fall right back into that, and we did. And he decided that it would be a good idea to show me some things that he learned from his previous partner. And I realized that this intimate relationship that I had with this young guy was no longer intimate, uh, that it was no longer about just the two of us, that uh, there was somebody else involved now, and that um, there was comparison going on, and there was an element of competition well, this was I'll give you a little context this was during the uh, 70s, the early 70s, uh, and you know, there was a lot of free love, hippies. Um, and so, since intimacy was no longer the overriding reason for sex, uh, sex became for me about performance and satisfaction. And eventually, you know, I started learning about the power that women could have with sex. 
you know, for manipulation. Um, you know, I just got right in with the free love crowd and started engaging in casual sexual encounters. And I did that for about a year with this guy, Martin, bouncing in and out of my life. Um, but at the end of my junior year, I realized that if I wanted to save any part of my heart, I needed to get as far away from him as possible, and I needed to get away from the friends that I was hanging out with. So my mother had a friend. Her husband had been killed in a car accident, and she wanted to move out of the area, start a new life. And um, my mom arranged for me to move to Florida with her, which I did. I moved to Florida, um, started my senior year in high school, and the very first person I met was a Christian who invited me to go on a weekend retreat with her and her church. Um, Now, so you understand a little bit about my history. At this time, through all of this, I considered myself a Christian. I went to Sunday school every week. Um, I had prayed um, the uh, sinner's prayer when I was 10 years old. But I had been going to a church that was very liberal. They didn't believe in the power of prayer. Prayer was something you did because it was psychologically beneficial. Um, and uh, they didn't believe that the Bible was the living word of God or that the gospel had power to transform. And I met these people who talked about how God answered prayer and how God had transformed their lives. So on this weekend, we were fasting, and they um, had uh, the leader, uh, the youth pastor, did devotionals on prayer, confession, Uh, repentance, and he encouraged us to go back to our rooms and read our Bibles, to search our hearts, to confess our sin, and um, to start the path of repentance, to write letters asking people for forgiveness, people that we had offended and sinned against. And so essentially that's what I did that whole weekend. Um, I was rebaptized, and as the weekend progressed, this weight All this guilt and this shame that had been burdening me started to lift. And I really felt like a new creation. Well, it wasn't long before I ended up going back home. And I'm telling all my friends about Jesus and what he's been doing for me. And, you know, it wasn't too hard. The drinking, that wasn't hard to stay away from. The drugs, that wasn't too hard to stay away from. Cigarettes, cigarettes. I smoked two packs of cigarettes a day. That was a lot harder. Um, and um, I had been um, developing a relationship with a guy before I left, and that sort of picked up where we left off. And, you know, next thing you know, I'm in bed with Paul. And um, Paul's uh, living room was here, and his bedroom was here. So a bunch of our friends walked in the front door, and they said to his roommate, where's Paul? And his roommate said, oh, he's in the bedroom with Ginny. Well, one of the guys says with real disgust in his voice, what a hypocrite. And I thought, whoa, you know, he's right. And I really had to make a decision. You know, was I going to fall back into the pit? Or, you know, was I going to live a life that honored Christ? 
So I went home, I read my Bible, I prayed, um, and I decided, um, you know, I was just trying to figure out what does repentance look like. And so I prayed, and I decided that I needed to covenant with God that I would not have sex again until I was married. And it was seven, seven and a half years before I was married. Um, and it was hard. Um, I ended up having to give up some relationships because the guy I was dating thought that sex was the next step in our relationship. And I had to step back each time that happened and be willing to let go um, of that of that relationship and that person and just trust that God did have someone in the future for me. Um, and I found uh, shortly after that that God was really faithful. He provided me with two churches that I was involved in. One was close to home, and another one was um, far away. It was about 45 minutes away. But it was a whole community of young people like myself who had just converted. And they were all we were all struggling with the same issues. Um, and I think one of the things that had the biggest impact on me um, was a group of us uh, were in a Bible study uh, with um, a, an older couple was leading the group, and every week we would get together and we would confess our sins to one another. We would confess sins we had committed, sins that we were struggling with, and then we would pray for each other. We gave each other permission to speak into our lives um, and, you know, to call somebody on the carpet if they were living a little bit too close to the edge. We encouraged each other. Um, when we failed, we encouraged each other to keep going and to persevere. Um, and I learned a lot. I learned a lot about the power of confession, about bringing my sin into the light and not hiding it, and that God was faithful um, he was faithful to forgive me, but he was also faithful to give me the help that I needed uh, to move and, and walk past those, those areas of sin. Um, I learned a lot about repentance. I, I learned that repentance was often making a decision, and it was often a really hard decision. It was a decision about changing my behavior um, and, how, and deciding how I was going to represent Christ. And recognizing that my life wasn't my own anymore. Um, it, re- it required discipline, which I did not have. Um, which is why I required a community of people to be accountable to. Um, and I can't tell you how many times, and not just in this area, but in other areas, where they would say to me, you know, Ginny, you are walking down the wrong path. You are heading in the wrong direction here. Um, and I had to come to the place where I would repent. Um, and I learned that God was faithful. Um, I learned that he could provide me with the help I needed. If, if I look back, you know, I made, I, I said a prayer when I was 10 years old, and I got way off track. I mean, God sent me all the way to Florida, where the first person I talked to in my high school classroom was a Christian. I don't think that was an accident. And I think that's the other thing I learned, that God's grace is a lot more about just him forgiving our sins over and over again. God's grace 
is about giving us the power to change our lives. It's about giving us, it's about him stepping into our lives and sort of taking us out of the pit. Um, and so, you know, the gospel, God's grace, um, I learned that it had a lot about helping me change and not, not feeling stuck in a lot of those dark and hard places. Uh, I was trying to figure out how to end this. Um, and I just, I decided, um, to read from, uh, Ephesians 3, 20, verses 20 and 21. And it says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And, you know, I hope that from this testimony, you understand God can help you. God wants to help us all. Um, and he can help us much, much more than we ever thought. I never thought that I would have the hope um, that I lost uh, during that one period of my life. Um, but God is able uh, to give us a new life. Our scripture reading today is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, and as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is the word of the Lord. It's good to be back this morning. Uh, I really feel like I don't need to preach after that testimony, Jenny. That was awesome. And you really just touched on so many things that the Lord has put on my heart from this passage. Um, So we're talking today about sex in community. And that's a little bit of a challenge, I think, for us, because our culture really tells us that sex is a very private, personal thing that really nobody has a right to speak to you about. You can be sexually whoever you are, you can do whatever you want to do, and people should just leave you alone because it's private. It's what happens in my bedroom, stay out of my bedroom, right? Uh, I love what Lauren Winter says. She has a book called Real Sex that I would commend to you. I don't agree with everything in it, but I think it's very helpful. And she makes this, she makes this statement. Sex is communal because it is real. Sex has consequences. Sex is dangerous and delightful and tempestuous and elemental and it matters. What we do with our bodies, what we do sexually shapes our persons. How we comport ourselves sexually shapes who we are. 
If we believe that sex forms us, then it goes without saying that it is a matter of public business. Because how we build the persons we are, persons who are social and communal and political and economic beings, is itself a matter of social concern. So what is she saying? Winner is saying that who you are sexually is shaping of your person. And how you are shaped as a person impacts everyone else in your life. It impacts who you are. I love C.S. Lewis on this because he talked about how, you know, people just say, oh, you know, if all the ships are sailing in a fleet in formation, you don't have to worry about what's going on. That's his illustration. I'm sorry. I got ahead of myself. He was challenging the idea that personal ethics don't really matter in public life. That personal ethics are just that. They're personal. And so he likened it to a fleet of ships. And what he was saying is, if you have a fleet of ships sailing, it absolutely matters what is going on inside each individual ship. Because if one ship is out of kilter, you know, it's going to wreak havoc. It's going to sail into all the other ships, and there's going to be cataclysm in the middle of the ocean. Um, Who we are personally matters. Who we are sexually radically impacts who we are publicly and our interactions with one another. And uh, let, me, let me take a step back for a moment to just say, again, you know, Jeff uh, welcomed you early in the beginning of the service. If you were new here, if this is your first Sunday, and I have to tell you, if this is your first Sunday, it's kind of a wild Sunday that you, the Lord has brought you here. Um, why? You know, talking about sex, and particularly how the Bible talks about sex, is really challenging to our culture. And it isn't just challenging our culture. It's always been a hard sell, no matter what century we were in. Uh, when this book was written, it was written to an adult, adult converts to Christianity from paganism. And just to give you a little picture, uh, in pagan culture, prostitution was state-sanctioned. It was actually uh, something that the state used to subsidize the building of their temples and worship of pagan deities. Prostitution was really uh, an incremental, uh, uh, a, a very important part of of pagan worship. Sex was a part of pagan worship. You know, one Greco-Roman poet said, we have concubines for our pleasure. We have, um, no, no, we have, con- we have mistresses for our pleasure. We have concubines for our daily bodily needs. And then we have our wives who bear us legitimate children and care for our houses. Now, obviously, that was a hugely sexist thing. It didn't work both ways with the sexes. But it's a picture of this was the culture that this book was written to. And, you know, we see this in what Paul says. He, he's challenging them. Listen, listen to what he says. We ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus. Uh, he knows that this is a hard sell. He knows that this is going against the grain of their culture. And he's not coming with a command. Now, he is, and I'm going to get to that in a minute. But he's starting off saying, I'm asking you and urging you to. There's a sense of pleading. There's this double appeal. Would you please hear this? Would you please listen to me? Uh, in, in 1 Thessalonians 2, he describes his relationship with the Thessalonians as a nursing mother or a father with his children, that there's this sense of deep care for their souls. And, and we see that in our passage. Now, he does go on and, and make clear this is really important what's going on. And, and so what does he say? He's asking and urging them what? In the Lord Jesus... And then he says, you know the instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. And so I want you to see this. He's, this Greek word for instructions is, is military terminology. It's referring to the commands that come from a superior officer on down. And so Paul wants them to see, why do I plead with you? 
This isn't my teaching. This isn't coming from me. I'm not the one saying you've got to live against the grain of what comes naturally, and we'll talk about that more later. He's saying this is coming from who? The Lord Jesus. The one who is Lord, the one who rules over all, the one who calls us to allegiance to him. So this is incredibly important that he's calling us to see. And I want to look at four things. First of all, we're going to talk about the importance of sexuality, uh, what it says about who we are spiritually. Then we're going to talk about the danger of sexuality, uh, the way that it can have that shaping influence that, that Winter was talking about. I'm going to talk about the blessing of sexuality. It's not all going to be negative. And, uh, and then what is, what is the deeper reality behind sexuality? Okay. So starting off, what the first point is uh, the importance of our sexuality. And I want you to see this. Why is this so important? This passage, probably more clearly than any other in Scripture, ties together very clearly that who you are sexually demonstrates an allegiance of your heart. Who you are sexually reveals who you are spiritually. This is incredibly important. You need to see this. He's saying this is the will of God, that you would turn away, that you would be sanctified, that you would abstain from sexual immorality. Uh, Okay, sanctification. Sanctification um, is is biblically tied with the idea of holiness. Let me just explain that quickly. I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail. But a lot of people, when they hear the idea of holiness, they think it has to do with morality. Uh, They kind of conflate the idea of righteousness and holiness. Holiness is a whole different idea. When, when God is telling us in this passage that we need to be sanctified, what he's saying, the idea of holiness is, you are one who is set apart. Sanctification means you are set apart. And, and that's why he's, he's pleading that they would see the Lord Jesus in this, because we are supposed to live as people who are set apart. Our sexuality is supposed to demonstrate a set-apartness, if you will, from the rest of the world that we live in. Um, and, and so what, is, what does this mean? Um, we've been bought with a price. Why is he referring to him as the Lord Jesus? Because there's supposed to be this very clear message to us, what does it mean to you to be a Christian? And maybe you're here today and you don't really understand much about the Christian faith. Maybe you've never been in church or you've been away for a long time. Um, what it means to be a Christian is you belong to Jesus. You belong to him. And this... I'll give you the sneak peek at the end of the sermon is, it's not a master-slave kind of relationship. It is a husband-with-his-wife relationship. It is a relationship of love. I love what it says in in Titus 2, um, that Jesus gave himself up for us in order to redeem us, a people for his own possession. Jesus redeemed us. Jesus came and laid down his life. He died on the cross so that we would be his people, that we would belong to him in this love relationship with him. So the first thing I want you to see is that, that who we are sexually reveals who we are spiritually. That's why sexuality is so important. Um, I'm going to talk about this more at the end, but sexuality rightly lived is crammed with, with theological truth that God wants us to get. God wants us to understand him more deeply through our sexuality. There's a reason why he created us this way. So I just want to ask you, um, if the litmus test for your faith was who you are sexually, what would it reveal about you? What does that reveal about you? If the only test for your faith was who you are as a sexual person, what does it say about your heart? The allegiance of your heart. 
This is incredibly important. He loves us. His passion is for us. And, and I long for you guys to see that there's, there's a calling in that. He, he invites us. I love, I love what Jenny said towards the end of her testimony, that, that grace is intended to help us to grow. And we see this in our passage. He says in verse 1 that he's, he's longing to see them live in a way that pleases God. That they would do so more and more. That they would grow in this. And that's what, that's what God anticipates. A life of change and transformation. So in each of these points as we go through, I want to talk a little bit about community. Um, if our sexuality reveals our spirituality, we're talking about the most important issues in the universe. Who you are before your creator. That's why community is so important. That's why I love what, what Jenny said. We need to let people be intrusive in this area of my life. Because the weightiest matters in the universe are at stake here. You know, if you had someone who you saw doing very destructive things, maybe with drugs and alcohol, or with money, or maybe just did a relationship, um, an abusive relationship that you knew was poisonous, you would not just stand by if you loved that person. You would enter into that. Right? If, if I am, um, you know, I'm walking along with my daughter and, you know, we were at the Grand Canyon or something, and she got too close to the edge and started to go down, it would be an incredibly loving act for me to grab her by her hair, right? My one daughter has this really long blonde hair. It would be incredibly loving for me to grab her by her hair. That's different than when her sister grabs her hair in their bedroom over the hairbrush. Um, it's an act of love. And we need to be willing to do that for each other. We need to be willing to open up our lives, to let people be intrusive, to let people say hard things to us. Um, Are there people that know you? Are there people that are speaking into your life, that know who you are and where you struggle with these issues? Okay. That's the first point, that sexuality is important. The second point is the danger. Now, what is the danger? Uh, you got to hang with me here. Um, The danger with sexuality is that it's really pleasurable. Sex feels really good. What does that mean? We're going to be tempted to use it the way we want to use it. The huge draw for us in this culture is to believe that we're autonomous creatures, right? That we can live however we want to your own self, to thine own self be true, right? Is a banner statement for lots of people. Just be true to yourself. Live how you want to live. Pursue the things you want to pursue. Um, sex is really pleasurable. The danger is to say, you know what? I can do what I want with this. It is a personal, private thing. Um, it's mine to enjoy. Let me just indulge. Let me just indulge and enjoy it. Um, and what do we see in our passage? It says that um, we should not live as the pagans do in the passion of lust. Uh, there's a reality that because sex is so pleasurable, it can become an incredibly ensnaring thing. Um, and let me just let me take a step back first to, to say that um, this is kind of the essence of what the Bible is talking about when it talks about sin. And again... Uh, I realize there might be people here that are investigating the Christian faith, and, and none of us tend to like the S word very much. Uh, it tends to keep us out of church often if we don't know Jesus. Um, we just think we're going to hear about sin and be beaten down. What, what do we mean by sin is the, the propensity of my heart to say, I don't care what God says. I don't care even really ultimately what my actions do to you, unless they're really bad. Like, I'm not going to kill you. Um, but I just really want to live for me. I want to do things that make me feel good. That's the most important thing is that I feel good, that I do what, what I enjoy. 
And that's what the Bible talks about with sin. And it's, it's warning us here that that is how pagans live. The Gentile, the word Gentiles is literally the nations in Greek. And, and it's saying all the people who just live following other gods. This is how, this is what they do. If it feels good, do it. And just indulge in whatever pleasure. But here's the thing. Um, we're not autonomous. We have a creator who's designed us and who has a plan for sexuality and a design for sexuality. Um, why does he put loving restraint on us? Because he knows what's good for our soul. He knows that sexuality is like a horcrux and that it splits us apart. He knows what's going to be best for us. Um, I have siblings who are wealthier than I, and I receive some benefits from that. My, my sister just bought a house in Maine, and she's invited me to come up for a week in the summer, and that's wonderful. Uh, but she has a Porsche, and I really wish she would let me drive that car. But in certain places, she's just not willing to go. Um, she takes really good care of that car. She follows the maintenance schedule. She changes the oil constantly. Uh, she knows that she needs to do certain things in order for it to run well. Our sexuality is the same way. God knows that if we don't follow him in this as the designer of sexuality, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, it's not going to go well. It's not going to work well for us. And, and there is going to be a breakdown ultimately in our lives. So Paul makes this wild statement, and this ties a little bit with what I was saying earlier about sexuality revealing our spirituality, because he says, um, living a crazy sexual life is what pagans do. Now, two weeks ago when I was here, I talked to the men about Ephesians 4. I don't know if that sermon's online. You can check that out, women, if you haven't heard it. It's probably a little grittier than I would speak now, so I'll give you that warning. Um, But the main point of that sermon was... We turn away from God. When we turn away from God, he describes pagans as turning away from God. And when they turn away, you lose sensitivity to life. You get hardened to the pleasures of life broadly. So you go for pleasure wherever you can. The main way, place where we tend to go is sexuality because there at least is some jolt. You get some tingle when everything else feels like it does, you know, nothing tastes anymore. And what it's like is, is somebody in cardiac arrest. And, and they needed the fruit. The, uh, I did it the same last time too. You know, the thing that shocks you. Um, <laughs> to bring life. That's how we start using sex. And the problem is we do that even as believers. One of the things I want you to see real clearly is that this was written to Christians because Christians need to hear this too. So part of me wants you to be concerned today. I want you to sit here and say, okay, what does my sexuality reveal about who I am spiritually? But at the same time, and as we're going to go to more in a few minutes, I want you to hear the comfort of the God who is a healer, who wants to meet you where you are, who does want to bring transformation to your life. Because this is written to Christians. We need to hear this. So the danger of sexuality is that it's pleasurable. Uh, one of the challenges, and we see this particularly in Ephesians 4, and I, I point to that passage, verses 17 to 19 particularly, is that the more you give yourself over to sex, there's this this tragic irony that the more you give yourself to it, the less it satisfies you. And some of you know this. The more you give yourself to it, you, you, you end up with diminishing returns. It doesn't satisfy the way it once did. And yet you keep thinking, I just need more, I just need more. And you guarantee that you're never going to find satisfaction. Um, our passage talks about the passion of lust. It's two different Greek words. Some commentators think with 
with the Greek word pathos, he's, he's trying to get at the, 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 the passive side of vice, the way that we kind of become enslaved by these things. And then with epithemia, that we have these ruling desires that, that we need to continue pursuing, and there's aggressiveness to it. Um, and so he's, he's saying that we end up being controlled by our lusts. And then there's the contrast we're going to get to in a minute, that we are called to control ourselves, not be controlled by our desires some of you guys know what that's like. You plan your life around your next fix. You figure out, uh, maybe you're married, and you figure out, when is my spouse going out? And so how can I work in my time on the Internet or my time going online, talking with somebody I shouldn't be talking to? Uh, I wanted to say this earlier. I'll say it now and probably again, that, that sexual sin, by the way, is a gender-neutral pathogen of the soul. So I'm not just talking to men. Ladies, I know you all are messed up too in this area of life. All of us need transformation. Um, Some of us plan our lives over the next hit we're going to get. Some of us are on the prowl, constantly looking, who is going to be that next conquest? Who is that man I can seduce? Who is that woman I can seduce? Um, Some of us know what it's like to live controlled by these things and enslaved by these things. Now, some of you might be sitting here. And you might be saying, well, I'm not, a, I'm not enslaved. Okay, I know I'm doing stuff I'm not supposed to be doing, but it's not ruling my life. Um, I want to warn you. You may be in a more dangerous place than you think. There's a real mercy if you know you're a slave. The people who, um, the people who feel a lot of pain because of the sin that they're involved in, that's a severe mercy. That is God wooing them. If you're doing what you're doing and you're getting away with it and you're making it work, you're in a dangerous place. You're in a dangerous place because your heart can get hardened. You think you're playing everybody else when we think in our hearts we're playing God too. And he's saying, this is incredibly serious. You're rejecting me and what you're doing. Paul ends this up saying, if you disregard this teaching, you're not disregarding me, you're disregarding God. So the greatest danger isn't that we can become enslaved by pleasurable experiences that we just want to keep repeating again and again and again. The greatest danger, ultimately, because this is important, because it's about our spirituality, is that our hearts will get hardened. And then in the midst of this, we're going to start looking more and more like pagans who disregard God and just live for ourselves and pursue our own desires. Um, This is incredibly important, and I want you to wrestle with that, to consider that. So there's lots of, lots of Christians that are living in this place. And I suspect um, that there's people here that are living in this place. That there's people here that are struggling with things like pornography, with masturbation, with a, a fantasy life that's out of control. Um, I suspect that there's people here dating couples, and I've, I've heard that there's a lot of sexual activity among dating couples in this church. From my own work at Harvest USA, it seems to me that lots of the young guys who come to me, that what Christian people do is they have sex now. That's just kind of what we do. Um, This is incredibly serious. I want to challenge you in some real particular ways. Um, You know, we need a broader... We need to, to transcend the Clintonian definition of sexual activity. Okay, that sex isn't just intercourse. Um, 
The Greek word used here is porneia, which is just a catch-all for all kinds of sexual activity. Um, it comes from Greek word for prostitute, but, but really in, the biblical writers use this for, for any kind of, any kind of to, to just be very direct, genital contact between unmarried people in any kind of way is what they have in view here. And, and it's warning us to abstain from these things, to turn away from these things. Um, yeah, and this, you know, I don't know what you'll think of this. Uh, I've been, I lost my wife 14 months ago, and, and a, a wonderful companion on my journey in all this has been Wendell Berry and his novels. Uh, I don't have time to go into all that, but in his one novel, um, Hannah Coulter, she's got a great line that she gives to guys dating her. She says, would you do that in front of Grandma? Are you ready to do that in front of Grandma? Um, that's not a bad thing to keep in mind. You know, I will admittedly tell you I'm, I'm pretty puritanical with physical things. Um, and, and God's really just put things in my heart. I'm not laying this law on you, but God has put in my heart that I don't want to kiss a woman until a minister of the gospel tells me I can kiss my bride. Again, I'm not laying that on you. Um, but why? Because I see how physical activity bonds. Even things that everybody would normally say are okay. It can have a bonding quality that can cloud my vision and my understanding and my ability to really discern wisely, is this the woman you have for me? I know that my heart could go there, so, so we need to be careful. But at the very least, keep in mind, would you do that in front of Grandma? I think that's good. Okay, uh, I do want you to be sobered by these realities. I do want you to look hard at your heart. Um, yeah, this is a current battle for the people of God. I, I want to make a few more points here before I move on. Uh, under this whole danger. What, what does it say? Sexuality is not a victimless crime. That's the argument, that it's a private thing, you can do what you want. With two, If you have two consenting adults who both want to do this, it's still exploitive. It's just mutual exploitation. Well, it's still exploitive. Uh, the, the, the passage describes this as transgressing and wronging. Transgressing in the Greek has this idea of trampling down a boundary. There's a boundary that's been set up and you just are trampling it down. And, and the, the, the word for wrong, wronging one another in the Greek is, is actually trade language and the idea is defrauding. You're defrauding one another. You're ripping each other off. You're transgressing, you're trampling somebody's soul, the boundaries of somebody's soul in this, and you're ripping them off while you do it. Um, it's incredibly important and I want to throw out a couple things for you to consider as we talk about this. Um, Because as we trespass on someone's soul, as we trample down a boundary and trespass on someone's soul, as we rob and defraud them, particularly I want to address the body here and dating relationships within the body here, you are doing that to someone who is loved by Christ, who has been purchased by Christ, who is called to be devoted to Christ. So let me be very direct. Men, That woman you are trying to coerce oral sex from at the end of your date is the bride of Christ. He cares about that. That really matters to him. Women, the guy that you really want to have come over for a sleepover, maybe the sexual favor is involved because I know you all enjoy sex too, but you really are craving intimacy and closeness. The man you would invite over for a sleepover, is called to be wholly devoted to Christ, to have a heart that is not divided, to be dedicating himself to Christ. We need to see this. Um, I 
I do want to say, for, for both genders, and I really appreciate what Jenny said again in her testimony, um, who you're involved with, if the Lord would lead you to marriage, would be who you marry. And what do I mean when I say that? If you have somebody that's pushing the boundaries now, y'all need to run like the wind. Y'all need to risk what Jenny was talking about and face aloneness. And, you know, there's no ring on the finger. I'm preaching it to myself. Because it's better. It's safer. If y'all are involved with people who have major issues with pornography, who have major issues with physical boundaries with you right now, believe me, when God swings the door wide and says, come feast, those things don't change. Because they're really not ultimately about hormones and physiology. They're about the allegiance of that person's heart. And if that person is not wholeheartedly diverted, devoted to Jesus now, they won't be on the other side of I do either. Just because all of a sudden you've got this sanctioned place where you can do this and it's okay, doesn't change who somebody's heart is, what, what their heart looks like. Okay. Um, why is this important? You know, we... I know there's, there's ways in which we can say, but, but we love each other. Okay, we really love each other. We're going to get married. You know, that's the whole argument. We really love each other. It's just a piece of paper, right? Um, no. If you really love each other, you're going to point each other to Jesus. Don't call what is happening outside of marriage love because it's not love. It's defrauding each other. It's robbing each other. It's trespassing on a soul. It's taking someone who you're supposed to point towards Christ and trying to consume and possess for myself. It's actually the exact opposite of what God says love is. We need to take it seriously. Uh, There's one last point I want to make, and it is going to get positive really soon here. (laughs) Um, I just want to touch on this because this is really important. Jesus, Paul makes a profound statement about Jesus here. He says, the Lord is an avenger in all these things. The Lord is an avenger. Um, and I want you, particularly brothers and sisters, if you're looking at your spirituality according to your sexuality and thinking things are wrong, I do want you to tremble a little bit at the idea that Jesus is an avenger. But more importantly, I want to talk to people who have been sinned against sexually, to men and women who have suffered abuse in whatever form, and and abuse takes all kinds of forms. Some of us were abused at a young age or as teenagers. Uh, Some of us have experienced abuse in dating relationships where there was a push to go in directions that we weren't comfortable with. You know, abuse happens in the marriage bed where somebody feels exploited and used instead of cherished. Jesus is an avenger. Jesus cares about the pain you have experienced. And Jesus wants to meet you in those places of pain to be your healer. You know, an avenger in the Old Testament was somebody who restored life. When life was taken away, he restored justice to the oppressed. He restored life. And that's who Jesus is and what he wants to do for you in your brokenness, in the places where you've experienced abuse. He wants to be your healer. He wants to meet you there. Um, I would point you to Revelation 19. It's a picture of Jesus that I love, especially... 
and the loss of my wife to see the one who has conquered death, the one who is the ultimate rider on the white horse, who is coming back to destroy all our enemies. If you have suffered abuse, I would urge you to see Jesus in that passage, to know that he cares about what you've gone through and that he is committed to setting it right. Um, And at the same time, that he's a God who suffers, that he has suffered too. He understands your suffering and wants to meet you in your suffering. And I would say this is an issue where we desperately also need community. This is not a place where you just kind of go off on your own and deal with Jesus with abuse. You desperately need the body of Christ to help you process what has happened to you. And so I point you to Arlene and the counseling services here. You can call Ellen and myself. Uh, You cannot face this kind of brokenness. There's probably nothing more damaging to your soul than sexual abuse. And you need to seek out um, brothers and sisters to walk with you in this, to minister and care for you in this. So, last point on community with this whole idea of the danger of sexuality. And and again, Ginny touched on this so beautifully. Uh, We, our propensity is always going to go back to who we are naturally. You know, what this passage is saying, why does he say this is what pagans do? All he's saying is this is what you do naturally. Naturally, what you do is what feels good. Why wouldn't I, right? We need other people in our life to help us not drift back to our natural inclinations, to be in our life, to be intrusive. Uh, Here's the reality. You will never overcome your struggles with sexuality alone. You will never, ever do it. Uh, Last spring, I don't know how many of you were here, I preached on 1 John 1 and the importance of honesty and vulnerability with other people in the body of Christ. The reason why I wanted to preach on that is because we desperately need it, because that's the only way we grow. That's the only way we grow. And so we need community, particularly where sexuality is dangerous, because we are only as sick as our secrets. Uh, we will never overcome our struggles alone. We need the body. We need to be willing to be open and honest. Okay, I'm going to move on to a couple positive points here. The blessing of sexuality uh, is my third point. God created us sexual and, and declares it to be very good. Now hang with me here um, because this passage is saying something incredibly profound. It tells us uh, that we, can, can, we need to know how to control our own body in holiness and honor. Now if you have the ESV open... You see, it says, "Take a wife for him. Take a wife for himself." Um, the Greek word skuos that they're playing off there. The reason why they say "take a wife" is because in First Peter three, Paul refers to a wife as a vessel. That's a very unique reference. That's the only reference in the New Testament where that happens. So commentators historically have been a little for him. Is that what he's talking about here? But there's there's some scholars that I appreciate who are you know F.F. Bruce, Gordon Fee. You know, these are like pretty top-notch Bible scholars think that Paul is making a much more direct, uh, euphemistic reference to genitals. And so he's basically saying, know how to control your penis and your vagina in holiness and honor. And, and how they draw that argument is from First, First Samuel 21, hang with me, in the Hebrew, First Samuel 21 is where David's, David's army is starving. Okay, so they go to this temple, and the priest says, I don't have anything to give you but this special holy bread, and I'm not supposed to let you have that, but you guys are hungry and you've been protecting us, so okay. Are the men clean? Have they kept themselves away from women? If they've done that, then they can have the bread. And David says very blatantly in the Hebrew, yeah, their penises are clean, don't worry about it. When the Greek translation was made of the Hebrew, they used the same Greek word, skuos. And so I think, you know, scholars, and I agree with them, are saying this is, this is telling us, uh, it's pretty glorious. It's telling us that we can use our genitals in a way that is holy and honorable. 
And why is that so important? The history of both Eastern and Western philosophy at different, you know, different strands have basically come to the same place. The physical is bad. You need to transcend it, right? The physical is bad. You've got to overcome the physical. The Bible always says, no, 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 no. The physical is good. God created the physical and declared it very good. In fact, scriptures even teach that our eternal existence is physical. We're going to have new bodies. We're going to have physical bodies for all eternity. The physical is good. And here, God is saying, you can use your genitals in a way that is holy and honorable, in a way that is glorious and edifies us and blesses our creator, that he created sex for us to enjoy, for us to revel in. So there's a proper context, and, and we're, we're invited to see the goodness of God who, who made this gift. Um, you know, Christianity honors our sexuality and invites us in the appropriate context to revel in it, to feast. And, um, yeah, I mean, th- think about it like this. Prudish views of sexuality are something that, that people, you know, if you look at church history, there's been all kinds of like prudish views about sex. And those have really been added to scripture. Um, I'll, I'll give you just kind of the example from, from nature. Uh, I believe God designed the orgasm. I think that was his creation. He's the one who put the nerve endings in our genitals so that it would feel that way. He created it. He is the God who, in uh, I know the first sermon in the series, Jeff was looking at, at Song of Songs, and Song of Songs is this glorious love poem that, again, if you brought out the full import of the Hebrew, like we wouldn't feel real comfortable reading lots of those sections in a mixed group. I mean, it's not pornographic, but it is robust and clear what it's talking about. And I'll just give you one example. Um, you know, the, the male and the female describe each other's bodies, and they're, like, really getting into describing each other's bodies. And at one point, the woman describes the body, and you're the man's body, and she says, uh, I, f- I forget how the ESV translates it, I think it's like your stomach is like ivory. Um, that is a very safe, I mean, it's accurate, kind of, but it's a very safe interpretive decision. Where do we get ivory from? A tusk. Just run with the image. Um, Proverbs 5 invites a husband to delight in the breasts of his wife, to be satisfied with them. God created sexuality because he, he invites married couples to feast. He is a God of pleasure, and he wants us to experience pleasure. And we need to see this very clearly, that, that he wants us to experience pleasure, that he wants us to indulge in these things in the appropriate context. I mean, think about this broadly. He created taste buds. We wouldn't necessarily need to know what chocolate tastes like, but he thought that was a good idea. Um, he gave us our sense of hearing so that we could appreciate beautiful music. He gave us our sense of sight so we could be amazed at the glorious spectrum of colors that he's made, that he, he's a God of pleasure and in all of life is inviting us to see that and to enter into that. And so I want to speak particularly to married couples uh, that it's so crucial that you understand that God delights in the marriage bed, that God delights in married couples um, within Christian marriage, making love, that really sex and marriage is supposed to be an act of worship, right? The the Catholic Church actually sees it as a sacrament, that marriage is a sacrament. There is something glorious 
and worshipful about sexuality. And uh, I think all the other single people would agree with me. Would you all please go home and have sex? That is one clear sermon application for you today. That would be a wonderful Sabbath activity. If uh, you don't have kids, you can get away with it. It's, it's, it's a great act of worship that he invites us to delight in within the context of marriage. Um, now, I'm going to talk about this more in my next point, but I also want to say just briefly here that, that he invites married couples to feast. He calls us as singles to fast and that he delights in that too. He delights in our fasting. I'll say more about that in a minute. And again, this is a place where we need community. Why do we need community? Um, number one, and I know married couples, you might not want to admit this, but you know it's true. Sex in marriage is a little clunky. Uh, if you've been raised in the Christian church, and particularly if you're here and, and, and you've been obedient in this area of life, uh, for the most part, I praise God for that. Uh, I do have to warn you, they lied to you in youth group. When you had the abstinence program and they said, if you just wait, your wedding night's going to be awesome. No, it won't. It, you know, there'll be good things about it, but it, it'll be it'll be a little awkward. It's going to be a little clunky. Um, it's going to be probably painful. But see, that's buying into the world's view. The world's view says, oh, just grab it now. Like, you know, when you're young and hot and beautiful. And the church just says, oh, just wait. Just wait till then. You'll still be young and hot and beautiful. It'll be okay. No. God's design is it is supposed to grow over decades. Sex and marriage takes work. It takes work. And we're not honest about that. You know, we have abstinent programs, like I said. Just telling lies to kids. Uh, and we keep those lies going because we're not honest in the body of Christ that, you know what, sex and marriage is hard. I can remember at one point, I'd probably been married like two, three years or something. We, we had, um, yeah, actually it's probably more like four years, four or five years. We were living in this house because I, I remember being in the basement. I was like tinkering with something in the basement. It was a Saturday morning. And I remember thinking, I wonder if we're going to have sex tonight. And, and then uh, I can say this because my, my wife can laugh with me in heaven. Um, my next thought was, hmm, that sounds like a lot of work. I wonder if we should just run a movie. <laughs> Sad but true. And now I'm sitting there saying, man, I wish I had sex that night. Did I have sex that night? I hope I had sex that night. Um, what, what's the point? It's, it's, it, it's different in marriage. It takes work in marriage. Um, we need the body of Christ to challenge us to persevere. How are you guys doing in that area of your life? How is that going for you? We need older couples. I was so blessed talking with Roger earlier um, about his desire to be in this church, that he and Ginny wanted to be here as an older couple in this congregation. Y'all need to take advantage of the older couples that are here to, to talk with them, to be blessed by them, um, to hear how in the world do you make marriage work for 25, 30, 40 years? How do you do that? Because I know there's married couples here that have been married five years or less saying, I don't know how in the world we're going to do it. I was there. I know y'all are here. So we need community to help us in marriage to experience the blessings of sexuality. We also need community as singles because the truth is, sex is a blessing, but right now God's saying not for you, and that really stinks. You know, it's kind of like there's a whole feast in front of you, and God's saying, sorry, you can't eat right now. Now, there's things we can do, like going around and looking at everything and like trying to smell the food and stuff is not a good idea. So there's things you can do to make it easier for yourself when you're single. There's things you can do to make it harder. But, but we need each other to encourage us, to point us to my last point, um, which is ultimately sex. There's a deeper reality to sexuality. 
There's a deeper reality that God wants us to see. It is profoundly theological. God created sex because he wants us to have a deeper relationship with him. Um, What does this mean? Our our passage tells us that we are a called people, right? In verse 7 it says, God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. And and, and look at verse 8. It starts off really negative, but I want to focus on the last clause. It says, therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God. And we talked about that. But then it says what? Who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Do you catch that? Why should you be abstaining from these things? Why am I calling you to live differently? Because this this glorious, positive conclusion, you're united to me. You're united to me. I'm giving myself to you. That's why I'm calling you to purity, because sex in and of itself is supposed to be pointing beyond itself to the giver of this good gift. And so Paul says in in Ephesians 5, where he's teaching about marriage, he says, this is a profound mystery. He's been talking about the roles of husbands and wives. Then he says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and his church. Marriage is about Christ and his church. Um, Marriage is always looking in a mirror dimly at a much more glorious reality, even at its most glorious best. Sex at its most glorious, worshipful best is still just looking in a mirror dimly at something much greater. And we need to see this, that that God created sexuality to woo us to himself, to enable us to see that falling in love in this world, marriage in this world, the delight of sexuality in this world are all supposed to be pointing us to him. And that's why the marriage context is so important. I could talk, you know, this could be a whole other sermon on why is it marriage. Um, Let me just say this. God wants sex in an exclusive relationship because he wants an exclusive relationship with us. He wants us to know that there is delight and glory and pleasure when our hearts are wholeheartedly devoted to him. And that's why he's created marriage as the context. Because he wants us to see this relationship with him. He describes himself as a jealous God. And again, um, I want you to think of that in the most positive context you can. Jealousy, not as someone who wants to control you, but as someone who is ravished with you. As someone who delights in you. As someone who so longs for your best. That he was willing to lay down his life. You know, what do we do with sexuality? We were talking about earlier how we transgress and wrong one another, how we exploit others for our own end. Jesus came and laid down his life for us. Jesus said, I love you so much, I will die for you. Not only am I not going to exploit you for myself, I'm going to lay down my life for you. And so the whole point of God calling us to abstain sexually is because he has something better for us. I love in Hebrews 12, he says, he, he says, don't be sexually immoral or an unholy like Esau. Esau was a guy in the Old Testament who went out hunting. He came back real hungry. He hadn't caught anything. He was starving. And he had a younger brother, and his brother was cooking some lentil soup. He didn't even have any meat in it. The guy was just, you know, he just had beans on the, on the stovetop. And Esau says, you know what, I'll give you my birthright. I'll give you my inheritance as the firstborn son if you just give me a bowl of that bean soup. And, you know, it wasn't even a steak. It was eating beans. And that's what in Hebrews 12, God is saying, why should you abstain from sexual immorality? Because it's like Esau. You're going for something less. 
You're going for something ridiculously less. Later, Esau regretted it and was weeping. He wanted his birthright back and he couldn't have it. But we have one who is a healer, one who does want to meet us in our broken places, one who does want to heal us and bring transformation to us. Um, He wants to satisfy our hungry souls. You know, why, why do our desires feel so insatiable? Because they were intended to be filled by an infinite God. They were intended to be filled by an infinite God. I love what it says in Ephesians 3. Um, And this is, I think, right before the part that Jenny read, where Paul is praying, and he prays that they would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that they would be filled to all the fullness of God. Jesus is described as ascending to heaven to fill the entire universe. We don't have a God who's a killjoy who's trying to rob pleasure from you. We have a God who's trying to protect our hearts, to guard us, to invite us to a richer life. You know, and this is the only way that, that life works. You know, if you're single, we are called to cling to Christ in a unique way. You know what? If you're married, you're called to cling, cling to Christ too. And some of you guys are struggling, particularly in your marriage right now, because you really thought that man or woman was going to fix your life, and you found out you ended up with a whole lot of trouble. You know, like, there were some blessings in it, but you got some problems in it too. He's calling all of us, regardless of where we are, to cling to him, to find life in him. He alone is the life giver. Um, another point I want to make very quickly is that who is this spirit that's given? The Holy Spirit is the spirit of Jesus. It's the spirit of Jesus. It's, it's the one who has already walked this road, the one who has been tempted in every way just as you are, the one who has suffered in temptation. It is that spirit that is given to you. It is his spirit so that you are able to face these things. Who wants to overturn, really, the moments of temptation in our life He wants to use as opportunities to draw near to us, to minister to our souls, to be our comforter, to enable us to find contentment and satisfaction in him. So, we need community to remind us of these things. You know, I'm believing it right now as I'm proclaiming it to you. But I need to believe it tonight when I go home. You know, I've had an incredibly hard weekend. I had the first, I attended my first wedding without my wife yesterday, which is incredibly emotional. Plus, my daughters were flower girls, so I'm like watching them walk down the aisle. And, you know, I had to do a graveside service yesterday morning. You know, it's just, I had to come here and preach today, obviously. So it's just been this really hectic weekend. Um, I need to believe this tonight. And I may need to pick up the phone and call someone to say, you know what, why should I not just indulge some kind of pleasure? Why should I not just satisfy myself? Why should I abstain? Why should I not go down to the corner bar at the end of my street? Because he wants to meet us. He wants to bless us in those places. And we need community to remind us that. In the places in your marriage where you're struggling, with sexuality in particular, you guys need to talk to other people. You are one flesh. That means one body part. You're like a thumb. You can't fix yourself alone. Um, If you're single, you need people to encourage you, to point you to this deeper reality, to remind you of what's coming. You know, in the last day, none of us are going to say, I wish I had more sex. You know, if you die a virgin on the last day, you're not going to say, I wish I had more sex. Something better will have come. Something more satisfying will have come. It's kind of like being really happy with a postcard from the Rocky Mountains as opposed to actually hiking and skiing them. That's what he's calling us to. Sex, even at its best, is just a postcard.
May he give us the grace to see him and worship him in whatever station he's called us to right now. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness to us. And Lord, it is true that you have called us, many of us, to walk very hard roads sexually. Some of us have experienced horrific things. And we need to know you as our comforter, as our physician. We need to let people into that mess. And I pray that you would give my brothers and sisters here a boldness to do that. To be willing to face those hard places and that shame and seek out counsel and help. Lord, many of us have split up our souls sexually with dozens, hundreds of people maybe. And we need you, again, to be our healer. We need you to restore who we are sexually. And I thank you, Jesus, that you've promised to do that. Lord, some of us are here and in really hard marriages and in hard places. And I pray that you would give them courage and boldness to seek out community, to be open about what's going on, to let others in. And Lord, we praise you because some of us are here and delighting and rejoicing in sexuality. And we want to rejoice with those who rejoice. And we praise you for this good gift. And we pray that no matter where you've called us, we would see you in it and worship In Jesus' name, amen.